I personally feel like the education at an HBCU can be more rigorous than some of our other institutions, mainly because of the fact that we understand that because you're black, no, we don't lower the bar for you. Because you're black, we challenge you because we know that right ultimately diamonds are made when you apply pressure. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Well, I want to welcome Hugh Durham, the Director of Graduate Admissions and Enrollments at Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University uh, in Tallahassee. Uh, it's a distinguished historically Black uh, university, uh, and he served in a similar role at Prairie View A&M University and has worked at Howard University, Georgetown University, and University of Phoenix, uh, to name some. Uh, we met a few weeks ago at the Student Success Summit in Portland, Oregon, and I invited him to talk about college admissions, uh, HBCUs, and his own personal story. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Tell me, you know, college expenses continue to rise, and I'm just curious how you advise young people and their families these days uh, in terms of how to prepare to meet the challenge. Absolutely. Um, you know, as college costs continue to rise, as you stated, and um, money seem to dwindle, especially our higher education budgets, I, I generally give students um, a, a tough, and parents uh, just try to be transparent, but I give them a, a real uh, saying, which is ultimately that it's the university's job to give you a world-class education, but it's not the university's job to completely fund it. But of course, right, the university should make an investment in the student as the student is making an investment in the institution that they plan to study. Well, ultimately, um, I always say that the onus needs to be on, right, the students and the family, um, and hopefully the university will meet them halfway, but it'll be on the student and the family to ensure that they are indeed doing things like completing the financial aid application, right, the FAFSA on time um, in terms of like when it opens up, so that way you have access to priority funding. Scholarships, you know, every Fortune 500 company is just about offering right some type of scholarship that students can apply for and obtain right because they get tax write-offs so it helps them um there are organizations that also offer scholarships so i always say that if you are a student that is really trying to go to college you definitely need to make sure you do your part in setting some time aside to apply for scholarships mm -hmm. Say a little bit about your own journey, because I found it quite inspiring uh, in terms of, uh, you know, just your pre high school, your high school experiences and, and how you found your way, um, you know, into your career. Right. So, you know, I come from a single uh, parent household. I have a single mother who had me at a relatively young age. 
and um, worked two full-time jobs to support me. Um, and the, the two full-time jobs weren't anything luxurious, right? It was working at a pizza hut in a beauty supply store. And I knew that, um, and my mom had to drop out of high school and couldn't finish high school, right? Because she had to support me and ultimately go to work. So what I found was my mom was real. She said, we had a real conversation about how expensive college was. And, you know, I was a first generation student going to college. So I didn't have, a, you know, I didn't have a, a plethora of family members that I could have gone to. I didn't have a trust with, you know, that was already laid out to me from a grandparent that was going to pay for this. So we had a real conversation and, and it was going to be maybe if I didn't get scholarships with the schools that I wanted to attend, um, it might have to be going to a community college where the, obviously the costs are cheap or, or less. But I didn't want a two-year degree. I wanted a four-year degree. I wanted to go to um, some of the best institutions in this country. So my mom said, well, we have to get on the scholarship trail. Well, I had a great advisor. I'm a native of Miami, Florida, and I had a great college and career advisor um, who kind of knew my story, um, you know, because some of the kids would walk around with brand new clothes and, and, and nice shoes, and I didn't have those luxuries. So he said, well, listen, we're going to get you where you need to be, but you're going to have to put in a little bit of work. And I was no stranger to that. Um, I was always the type of student that I felt like I had to have the, I had to have a balance. Yes, I was I enjoyed school activities. I was actively involved, but I also knew that I had to take my studies seriously because I did not want to work at a pizza hut. I did not want to work. Um, you know, if I was going to work at a pizza, I was going to own my own, you know, <laughs> be a franchise owner. I didn't want right. to work in a beauty supply store. So I saw that model. I saw how hard my mom struggled um, to support us and how hard she worked. So I said, yes. Tell me, how do I make this happen? And my college advisor, my high school counselor, Mr. Wilder, gave me the best piece of advice that I feel like I might have gotten in my entire life, which was what you need to do is every week, make sure you're applying for during senior year, you're applying for at least two scholarships a week. Now, in the beginning, it might be very laborious because you might have to write an essay. But ultimately, once you start getting to week six, week seven, you're going to take those same essays and you're going to recycle them because pretty much everybody's asking for the same type of thing. And I said, OK, because he said it's a law of averages. I said, why do I have why is, why is two the number? He said, because most students in senior year, they're applying for maybe two or three scholarships throughout the entire year. But it's a law of averages, right? A law of averages, meaning that the more you apply, the, the, the more you, the, the, the more the greater the net you cast, the greater the chances are that you'll get more fish as opposed to having a smaller net. And right. so, yeah. I applied for two scholarships a week when it was all said and done. I had applied for over uh, 40 something scholarships and I was able to get seven scholarships, uh, three that were on the national level. Um, I even wow. kind of applied for scholarships about the Madison that I didn't necessarily qualify for. You know, one of the stories that I told at that Black Student Success Summit was I applied for a scholarship that was for students that were left-handed. I'm right-handed. But I wasn't trying to lie, <laughs> cheat. <laughs> you know. I was not trying to lie, cheat, and deceive. I, I wrote an essay and explained about how I needed this money, and I said, "Listen, if if I if I get this scholarship, I will learn how to write with my left hand. Just give me six months." 
And, <laughs> and, and lo and behold, I was able to actually, um, I was actually able to obtain that scholarship. And I got a really nice call um, and, and a personal call. And they actually went ahead because there were 10, they were, they were giving 10 scholarships and only seven students had applied for the scholarship, including myself, but the CEO um, or the president of the organization uh, was touched by it and decided to go ahead and, and kind of double my award because he didn't want the money to go to waste. Wow. Wow. That's a great story. Say a little bit about um, how parents and students can um, present um, a profile that's appealing to an admissions office. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, while tests are still um, and SATs and, you know, are still used in some institutions, you're paying more attention to the overall package, right? And, and, and what are the things that you think a student be thinking about, even early in high school, that will give them a, a more presentable um, package? Right. And of course, now, depending on which director of admissions you speak to, you may get a different response. But I can tell you that for me and probably even for some of my similarly situated colleagues, GPA is going to be first and for foremost important, right? Because when you think about a GPA, you can't show up to very many high schools in the country, just show up and make A's, right? A's and B's. You have to do the work. So I always say that GPA should be your most important pro element of your application that you should put out for to any school um, or college that you apply to, because the GPA tells a story, right? Because we don't have the opportunity and the luxury to meet 99% of the students that apply to our schools. But what I can tell you is that GPA tells a story. It tells a story about that student's work ethic. It tells a story about their persistence. Those are all measurables, right, that we know arguably the most challenging and most difficult time in a student's life is probably that first year of college, right? That transition from how they've been educated in high school, which is now completely different from how you're being educated, right, in college. So that GPA is extremely important. And when you look at the profile, yes, we want students that are well-rounded, but most admissions directors are not gonna be okay saying that, well, you were so involved in your community, you were president of this, but now, you know what, we're gonna let that over, overshadow the fact that you have a 2.1 or a 2.5 GPA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about HBCUs for a moment and, and just the, the legacy, but also um, the decision that students sometimes uh, weigh between uh, going to, a, if they're African-American, going to an HBCU or going to a you know predominantly white or, or at least a more, um, uh, you know, just a different different school. Right. You know, HBCUs have been, when you think about when you go back to the beginning of history, um, you know, and, and the history of HBCUs, right, and how we were born out of it, uh, out of the, you know, the area of um, period of history called Reconstruction, you know, HBCUs were established to give, believe it or not, right, everybody an opportunity to be able to study in the sense that, well, Caucasian women were not allowed to go study 
at a lot of the schools that we so-called right our finance institutions in this country. So even in some of our HBCU history, you see you saw some Caucasian women. So first thing is that um, we gave everybody an opportunity right to be able to study. So you're going to see diversity on its greatest level. But because when you looked at history, right, there were so many things that were stacked up against us, uh, it allowed us to bond. That's the one common theme that I think translates now into that you'll continue to see in our HBCU culture, which is that our professors are bonded to our students, our students are bonded to our alumni. You see great pride, a great sense of tradition on our campuses. And when you talk about the education, I personally feel like the education at an HBCU can be more rigorous than some of our other institutions, mainly because of the fact that we understand that because you're Black, no, we don't lower the bar for you. Because you're Black, we challenge you because we know that, right, ultimately, diamonds are made when you apply pressure. So mm. I, I really, really um, value the education that HBCUs put out. And then when you think about it, right, you have some of the most amazing individuals in America that are entrenched in American history that came out of HBCUs. You know, 75% of African-American engineers, you know, over 50% of African-American doctors, dentists, lawyers, judges were all educated at HBCUs. Actually, it's HBCUs that are responsible for developing the African-American middle class. Mm -hmm. What do you, um, what do you see as the, the, the future here for HBCUs? Um, I know that in, you know, um, your institution, um, you made a point is very rigorous. So it's, it's, you know, it's, um, uh, it's not easy to, to, to pass muster to, to get in. Right. Um, uh, and, and I, and I imagine, I'm, I'm sure that's by choice. You want to have a certain standard that you've set. Um, and, and I think that, um, I'm just curious, just curious. I mean, what, what you see is the, the future for some of our, some of our schools, some, some are, um, uh, have had, uh, challenges in terms of infrastructure and, you know, keeping facilities, um, you know, uh, up to date and things like that, but overall what you see. Right. Well, you know, Florida is a unique uh, place. It's a unique space. So when we look at FAMU has always been an institution with great tradition. It has a great brand. You can go all across the world. And trust me, somebody has, somebody has heard uh, of Florida A&M, FAMU. So for us, yes, I, I mean, we're at this crossroads in a sense because when you think about HBCUs, they were founded on access, affordability. And when you have a 30% acceptance rate, that doesn't quite scream access. But Florida is unique because we are a part of our state university system of Florida, which is the number one state university system in the country. It's the second largest. Florida is a very attractive place for people to want to come live, right, to come study. Um, so when I look at Florida A&M, the system has certain requirements that they hold us responsible for. Graduation rate, graduating students in four years, areas of strategic emphasis, 
I mean, all these, we call them the metrics. So for us, we have to be, um, and we can afford to be selective because we get over 25,000 applications, at least this past admission cycle. Um, and I see it only increasing, but we keep, you know, our, we keep our class sizes small. So we're only looking for a freshman class of about 1500. So it means that yes, we get to be a little bit more selective, but we want to make sure that we're bringing in students that are going to add, not saying that they can't, but we're looking for students that are going to be successful, um, continue on the amazing legacy and tradition at FAMU, and more importantly, they're going to graduate and graduate within four years. So the SAT and the ACT don't tell us whether or not a student's going to graduate in four years and be successful, but we don't look at the composites per se. We look at how they've done on the subsections. So like on the ACT, we look at how you did in math, right? How you did in English, how you did in reading. Um, so we do that breakdown. Now, there are some HBCUs that obviously are going to be a little bit less selective because they're private schools um, and they're driven by enrollment. Um, we are driven by enrollment as well, but we're also looking at those metrics. So mm -hmm. I, I think a student can't go wrong with, with either path that they take. I just, I'm just really excited about the the notoriety now, like the limelight that HBCUs have now ultimately been getting across the country. Yeah, I, I know, I know for these students, there's a feeling that maybe, you know, particularly um, if their parents made a decision to move them to the suburbs or where they had the experience of being a minority, maybe, you know, uh, in, in their high school experience, they're hungering for, um, you know, just a, a more uh, culturally um, you know, experience that that uh, is a, is akin to um, you know finding and being around people that look like you, being around instructors and you know professors that look like you, and and just having a, a you know a rich cultural experience, and that's part of the appeal, I think. Absolutely, tell me where you can go, and no matter whether you came from the suburbs. Right, because we know as African Americans and minorities, period, right, we're diverse depending on whether you're from the West Coast, right, Oregon, California is going to be different from, from Washington State, you know, Florida is going to be different from New York, right, we're all different based on our socioeconomic statuses and how we were raised, but tell me where you can go and come to a space where you might have been the best and the brightest in your high school class. But now you arrive on a campus where people are just as smart as you, or if not, maybe even smarter. But the difference is that you're embraced as opposed to where it's like dog eat dog, you know, crabs in a bucket type of a situation. No, everybody here lifts each other up. Everybody here pushes and gets the best out of everybody because we understand that you know what, we're, the brain is only going to be as good as the person that is struggling barely to make it. So we, we're going to uplift each other. And I think that, to me, the spirit um, a lot combined with the community, what really makes HBCUs a special place. I want to ask you in general terms just about where we are right now uh, in terms of discussions about, you know, race and uh, in, in our country, um, you know, we're seeing, uh, without getting specific about states, uh, places where 
Um, questions about, you know, just um, authentic history are, are, uh, are being uh, erased um, legislatively. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting time. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there was a thought that you know, the presidency of Barack Obama, you know, was supposed to have marked a post-racial America, but we're seeing that it's anything but that. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to move you into a conversation that's, <laughs> you know, but just, just overall, you know, what, we, what are your thoughts about where we are as a nation on this issue? Yeah, I, I think I can say this. I think so progress has been made, but at the same time, I feel like not enough progress has been made. I'll just say uh, this will probably be my shortest response. I just want to <laughs> know, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that African-American history is American history. Yeah. You can't tell American history without telling the entire history. And mm -hmm. so the African-American experience, the Chinese experience here in this country, you know, anybody that's coming from um, anybody that's coming from not native to this particular country, I think, has something to add. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. African-American history is American history. Great. Well, thank you, Hugh Durham. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Um, we'll give you a, a information about you know when this post, and uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. And uh, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Madison. Thank you so much for the opportunity. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.